Hello and welcome back to the CDI podcast. I'm Shelby Fiegel, Director of the University of Central Arkansas Center for Community and Economic Development. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Yoder. Dr. Yoder served on the CDI Advisory Board when he was Chair of the Master of Science in Community and Economic Development Program at UCA. And while he is still an adjunct professor at the University of Central Arkansas, he has since gone on to bigger and better things in the great state of Texas. He is currently the research fellow at the University of Texas, Austin in the Department of Geography and Environment. So I'm gonna be talking to Dr. Yoder today about those bigger and better things. Uh, but before we get started, Dr. Yoder, I just wanted to formally welcome you to the CDI podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this very much. Well, we are so excited to get into our questions. But as a standard question where we always like to start just to familiarize the audience with you, um, is for you to share a little bit about your background and what interest you, interested you in the field of community and economic development. Well, um, I could spend the entire time just talking about this, but I'll try to condense it down. Um, I have always been very curious about places. Um, literally, when I was a child, uh, when we when we took family vacations, uh, that usually involved flying, and I would fight to get the window seat in an airplane, and I would stare out the window, and we would fly over communities, and I would wonder, what do they do there? You know, what kinds of, what do these people do in a place like that? Where are we? Are we over Ohio right now? You know, that kind of thing. But also, I think what really ruined me is when my parents bought a set of uh, world book encyclopedias when I was about six or seven. And my goodness, it just, uh, I, I was just attracted to reading about places and especially the activities they do there. And the, the World Book Encyclopedia was very good about talking about, you know, the country of Jordan and its exports. And so there I was at age seven reading about the exports of a country like Jordan. Um, fast forwarding to, um, uh, my college years, I did my undergraduate at uh, University of Houston, uh, got a bachelor's in business administration in marketing. And so much of the stuff that I learned there, I didn't realize it at the time, I kind of took it for granted, but we learned about you know things like um, Federal Reserve policy and things like that, that would just years later would just pop out as very important. We also learned about uh, doing research in business and in marketing. And we learned about things like the case study method. Uh, I had one professor who used the, the Harvard case study method. And it was just, it just made such an impact on me that I didn't realize until years later. Um, I then, I, I went to work in the, in the private sector for a short time after I got my degree, but I didn't find that very fulfilling working in the finance department of an, a medical electronics company. Um, so I decided that, that I wanted to go back to school and, uh, and get a, a math education degree. So I went to the University of Texas and uh, there the, at the time they required that, that uh, to get secondary certification, you have to get certified in two subjects. So I looked at the list of the alternatives to mathematics. I thought, well, you know, it's, I'm going to do math, so I might as well pick something fun. And I saw geography. I didn't even know that it was a discipline, even though, you know, going back to age six and reading the encyclopedias and looking out the airplane window and all that. So I did geography and I took my first semester, I took two geography courses just to kind of, you know, get them out of the way. 
well, that's, that was it then. It's like, okay, no, I don't want to be a high school math teacher. I want to be that, that guy up there in front of the geography class. That's what I want to do. So from that point forward, um, I just prepared for getting a master's degree and then a PhD in geography. I just, I knew what I had to do. Um, so I went to the University of South Carolina for my master's and I studied agriculture. And I studied uh, some uh, small, uh, small cities, small communities in the South Carolina Piedmont. Um, and basically what I was looking at was the, the transformation of the agricultural landscape from the, the kind of World War II era cotton production to the more contemporary livestock production. And, and how did that happen so quickly? So I studied a community called Saluda County, South Carolina, and there um, I learned a, a lot about things like demographics and how that impacts the economic activities. So what you had were farms that had done cotton back in the day, but the younger generation, they were not sticking around. Uh, they were leaving, and so the, the elderly farm owners had to kind of shift over to livestock uh, because that's really about the best they could do in their retirement, plus the fact that the cotton production all those decades had, had ruined the soil. So livestock production was kind of a, a, an adaptation to both demographic and environmental conditions. So that led me then to uh, my PhD program at Louisiana State, and I decided to study uh, Latin America. And in particular, I, I uh, did my doctoral dissertation in a small farm community in Costa Rica's Nicoya Peninsula. And that's where I got introduced to things like policy, you know, the importance of policy and land use. So I was tracing through the years how their agricultural landscapes were changing in the Nicoya Peninsula. And really what was underlying most of that was government policy towards uh, promoting certain uh, domestic crop production and certain export crop production. And also, um, there were some environmental uh, concern, some environmental conditions that happened where they were overgrazing livestock, and they had to shift over to um, a a tree seedling and reforestation type agricultural system. And that's kind of what I, what I studied for that. Then, what happened is. Um, I, after having worked on my master's and PhD in agriculture, I just decided I was I was done with agriculture. And around that time, um, uh, around that time, there was a, a kind of a growing literature on the sprawling of American cities. And you know, getting stuck in traffic a lot at the time, I started to think, you know, grr, this traffic, this is horrible. Uh, I wanted to study it. You know, what is what is going on with the suburban sprawl, and, per, and in particular the movement to the suburbs of commercial activities. I, I was noticing that office buildings, for example, were springing up in the, uh, in the suburbs and suburban zones, as well as retail shopping. So I, I became an urban geographer. Then uh, I got a, uh, my first position out of, um, out of graduate school. My first full-time position was at Texas A&M International University in Laredo, which is on the US-Mexico border. So I thought, well, that's kind of cool because I had studied uh, Costa Rica. So my Spanish was still pretty good. Um, and it's literally right on the border, my office window. I could see Mexico from my, from my office. It was kind of cool. And so I started to study urban geography in Mexico. 
And lo and behold, um, I, I took my first trip in. Well, first I had a student because I was telling my students that I was interested in this stuff. And a student took me around one, one Saturday in Nuevo Laredo, which is the, the city right across from Laredo, Texas, and showed me all the different zones of the city. And that was really neat. And then I, I took a bus to a place called Saltillo, which is about three or four hours in from the border. And as, as we were changing buses in, um, uh, in Monterrey, which is the big, you know, that's the third largest city in Mexico, um, I started to notice that, that commercial suburban development happening on the outskirts of Monterrey. And I thought, gosh, I want to just tell the bus driver to stop, you know, <laughs> just let me off here. I can study this suburbanization phenomenon in in Monterrey. And, and it's, they're actually kind of imitating some of the patterns that are happening in the US. And I thought, well, I'll just go on to Saltillo and see how that is. Well, lo and behold, we get to the outskirts of Saltillo and I saw the same thing. So it's like, that was my niche then, was to study um, suburbanization of commercial districts in Mexican cities. And I did that for a number of years. I started to study industrialization uh, in a number of different cities, uh, Merida and the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, I studied it in Torreon and Saltillo in a city called Monclova, where there's a giant steel mill on the outskirts of town. And that, that propelled a lot of suburban housing uh, uh, growth. And again, policy was, um, uh, underlies all of that stuff. So then fast forward to uh, getting the position at UCA um, I happened to notice in the, in the catalog, I guess it, maybe it was on the website for the College of Business that they had this, uh, they had listed this Master of Science degree in Community and Economic Development. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So I was at a, a little cocktail party with a bunch of faculty members and I met the, the then Dean of uh, the College of Business and I cannot remember her name. I wanna say, it was Pat Cantrell, I wanna say. And I just happened to ask her, you know, well, uh, tell me about this, this uh, community and economic development master's degree program that you all have. I wonder if there's a way maybe I could collaborate a little bit because I've been studying uh, communities and I've been studying obviously economic development and policy. And she says, do you want it? Uh, and I said, excuse me? She says, do you want, do you want the degree? I'm like, I'm not quite sure what you mean. She says, well, it needs a new home and we need a director for it. And I was kind of, uh, you know, sort of deer in the headlights. Well, the next thing I know, the provost is calling me into his office and uh, uh, basically telling me I'm going to do it. <laughs> and um, that happened. Uh, I don't know how personal I'm allowed to get in this in this thing, but that happened at exactly the time where there was a, a virus. Um, this would have been around 2010, I want to say. There was a. Was that the swine flu? I, I, that's it. I believe it was the swine flu. And I was the first faculty member at UCA to get that thing. And it, oh, it kicked, it kicked me in the rear end really badly. But uh, that's when those meetings were going on. And I was just kind of, you know, like in a fever and I couldn't really say anything other than yes. Uh-huh. And so they, they basically said, you're going to be the director of this program. It's like, cool. Okay. And, um, it, it was a good experience. I got to teach two classes in it myself. I had to uh, coordinate uh, the other instructors, completely online program. Um, I thought it had a very good curriculum. I made just a few minor changes to it, but it otherwise was a great curriculum. And so 
that's kind of how I got into it. And then, of course, as the director of that, I was sort of automatically then a board member for the CDI. Yeah, it kind of came all full circle, didn't it? And I think it, it's, it sure did. It's always very happenstantial how people fall into community and economic development. But um, you might be the first person that showed a very early interest um, through, through, you know, as a child at the age of seven um, in anything to do with community and economic development. So I applaud you for that. <laughs> that okay. You were an early adopter, right? This <laughs> sounded so interesting. And, and, and it's like, wait a minute, this, you know, I was reading through the, the um, you know, the curriculum that they had and the description of it. And I realized, my goodness, this overlaps tremendously with mm -hmm. the work that I've been doing as a geographer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that everything you already talked about, that community and economic development is such an umbrella field. I mean, it encompasses so many other fields of work um, to really make community development, economic development work within a community. Um, and so we're gonna talk a little bit more about CDI for a moment um, in that we, uh, the Community Development Institute, uh, you know, it's been around for 35 years and um, we have a curriculum uh, for just for CDI called the Community Development Handbook. And so knowing that uh, Dr. Yoder was an expert in his field, um, I definitely made sure to reach out to him and say, hey, we're updating our curriculum. We want to stay on the cutting edge. Um, would you be interested in doing the community asset mapping chapter, uh, which I thought was a perfect fit. Um, and hopefully you did too. I think you did based on what you submitted for your chapter. So um, for this part of our podcast, I really wanted you to just share about why you think asset mapping is important to our communities. Um, and then if there's any um, way you can incorporate the work you've done in the past into um, what you shared in the handbook, I think that'd be super helpful. Okay, I'll actually start with the second part of, of your, uh, your question. Uh, so after I took on the, the position to direct the, the uh, master's program in community and economic development, I, I decided, well, I really need to kind of follow suit and tailor my, um, uh, my research agenda towards that, because, you know, that's usually what we do as faculty members, you know, you publish or perish, right? So um, I started to study small cities in Arkansas, uh, because I figured, well, Arkansas is a state of small cities, you know, I mean, the largest city, of course, the kind of the primate city is is Little Rock and Northwest Arkansas is kind of giving them a run for their money economically. But most most of Arkansas really are, are uh, small cities and micropolitan areas. And so um, I started to study the micropolitan areas of Arkansas. At the time, there were 14 of them, as I recall, uh, because nobody was really studying that phenomenon, even though the Office of Management and Budget and the Census Bureau had, had designated that micropolitan um, uh, category. And what that means for, for those who are, are not familiar with that, a micropolitan area would be one or two counties, um, I guess that uh, theoretically it could be even more, contiguous counties where the, 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 the large anchor city of that area has a population between 10,000 and 
$49,999. And anything larger than that, $50,000 and above, is regarded as metropolitan and and therefore urban. Anything smaller than $50,000 is still regarded as rural. But yet, if you go to a city like, say, Searcy or um, Russellville, uh, you'll find that they have big city problems, even though they're smaller cities, you know, in mid, mid 20 thousands um, um, and even smaller than that. I mean, I've seen some traffic jams in, in Batesville that were, you know, <laughs> almost not quite as bad as, say, Houston or something like that. But, um, uh, but anyway, so uh, in studying these micropolitan areas, what I found was that there is such a need for collaboration between different stakeholders when they try to bring about economic development. And usually when, you, when you're talking about uh, bringing about economic development and, uh, for a place like that, or, or even smaller cities, uh, Moralton or Stuttgart, for example, uh, what they're really talking about is attracting, in, um, attracting new money to come in and set up um, some kind of a facility that's going to generate employment. And that could either be a distribution center or a manufacturing plant or what have you. And so um, I, does that kind of answer the question, at least get it started? Yeah, get it started on. Um, so that was kind of your background of work. And um, the second part that can now be, so why do you think asset mapping is important for those communities that you've talked about? Okay, so the, the asset mapping is important for communities like these uh, these micropolitan cities or other small cities, because they need to plan for their economic development. And in order to do that, you have to assess where your your community is. You've got to, uh, what I like about asset mapping is as a geographer, it's, it's kind of a cool concept because asset mapping is both literal and metaphorical. You know, the, the literal part of asset mapping is you can literally draw a map of your community and you can draw where the different uh, positive features are that you want to build upon. Um, so that would be things like, you know, generally all the micropolitan uh, areas of the country, all of them in Arkansas, they at least have a two-year college. Some of them have four-year colleges. Um and, and other, other kinds of features as well. So it could be, say, a, a, a really nice main street, like Batesville, for example, has a really vibrant main street. Magnolia, that blew me away when I went there. Their, they were, their main street was, was I'm, I haven't been there in, in probably six or seven years now, but at the time, they had a, a downtown merchants association that was kind of informal. They were not part of the Main Street USA program because that was that would have involved too much um, uh, financial obligation on their part to do that. But they just kind of did it as citizens and they were able to, to build uh, a really nice retail setting in the downtown area. And that whole um, pattern that I had been seeing of downtown areas stagnating, you know, the main street stagnating and strip shopping centers springing up around the, the fringes of these small cities that wasn't happening quite as much in Magnolia. They were actually able to, to draw some businesses to go back to the downtown. And I remember one night when I was staying there, I had some interviews one day with officials. And then the next morning I had some interviews. So I stayed the night and I went to the downtown and I just did kind of a census of the downtown. And I was amazed that there only a handful of 
of the storefronts were closed. And I was told that all of those that were closed were in the process of being remodeled and were gonna be reopening. It's like, wow, okay. So that, that was an example of a success story. Then on the other hand, you have some communities where the, the downtown, they struggle a little bit. Like Hope is an example of that. Forest City is an example of that. And a lot of that just has to do with, with how successful the, the local stakeholders are in building these things. So, you know, is the Chamber of Commerce on board with the mayor, for example, or the city manager, that kind of thing. So that's what asset mapping does is, first of all, the, the process is the purpose. Going through the exercise of asset mapping forces a community to really take note of what they have. Um, and, and by the way, the second half of asset mapping is, is more sort of metaphorical in that you, you kind of map the connections within the cities. So for example, you're mapping, like say the, the way the, the, the churches are organized and work with the, the civic groups and, and, and with the local chamber of commerce and that sort of thing. And, and the role of the economic development corporations is also very important. And so uh, asset mapping involves, um, you know, kind of taking an inventory in a, in a way, uh, I don't know if that's the best word to use, but kind of an inventory of the different groups in the city and how they work together. Uh, another thing about community assessment and, and asset mapping is you have to be mindful of how you define community, uh, because in some cases, the community might just be a neighborhood that has a problem that has to be solved, or the community could be the entire city, or in the case of a smaller place, a rural, a even more rural area, a town, but also uh, do you include in that when you're when you're um, looking at you know when you're mapping your assets? Do you include things that are actually not located within the community that are maybe nearby, but you could draw upon? And an example of that might be something like Moralton and Pettit Jean Mountain. You know they're they're not exactly in the same place, but yet Moralton kind of uh, you know advertises itself as a place that's near Pettit Jean. So is that really an asset? for uh, Moralton? I, I would say the answer is yes, even though they don't have any control over uh, what goes on at Pettit Gene, they can't really do anything about it other than just incorporate that into their own marketing of their community. Yeah, I think that you really hit the nail on the head um, speaking about the importance of that asset mapping and talking about, I think many leaders, when they think about assets, they think about the physical assets that they have. And um, oftentimes some of those networks and skill sets and um, people, you know, those social connections oftentimes aren't inventoried, but that is, I think, really the catalyst for what's going to make or break a community um, are those things we can't physically see. If I could just add one, one little part of that, that also includes looking at social capital. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what I was referring to there in terms of of just the abilities of the different uh, stakeholders to talk with one another. Political capital has to do with how well the different politicians work together. And then human capital has to do with things like the quality of the workforce. And that can make or break um, a community, uh, especially if you're talking a, a, a micropolitan area or even a smaller um, 
city and its surrounding area in a place like Arkansas is how prepared is the workforce to then be able to, for that community to be able to attract uh, new investment or to retain existing investment. Or if there's a, a struggling business there to find a way uh, to keep that business afloat. Yeah, absolutely. So retention, retention of business is, is equally as important as attracting business. But you've got, you have to really know where your, um, you know, how your, your assets line up. And you, you've got to be able to draw and play on those strengths. And that does not at all mean that you, you um, ignore whatever weaknesses the community has. You have to take that into account as well. Yes. And weaknesses could be anything from, you know, a bad location to uh, a, a workforce that's not quite trained for the things that are needed for the global marketplace now. You know, the, in other words, uh, how tech savvy people might be, that's increasingly important, as we all know. Um, so you, you want to, uh, when you, when you, when a community goes about doing asset mapping, they want, they, they'll want to really play on the positives of their assets and how they can build on those, but you don't want to ignore your weaknesses as well. Yeah, absolutely. When, um, we're on the same page. <laughs> those are the exact messages that we share um, when we work with communities across the state, oftentimes those rural communities. Um, so jumping into the next question, this is going to kind of, I think, build on the last one. You're working on a new book, um, or technically I've finished a new book, I should say, uh, but are in the process of sharing that. Um, so I want you to give our listeners a little sneak peek into uh, the new book and why it's relevant to rural leaders. And we're going to give you time to plug it and tell everybody to pick up a copy when it comes out. Okay. Well, hopefully we're not jumping the gun here. I would say I'm about 70 to 75% of the way through, but I at least have uh, a couple of the chapters are, are pretty much done. Um, some of the chapters I've just gotten started, but I know I've, I have outlined exactly what it is I need to do. But the book is a collection of case studies of the geography of economic development. And so what I'm trying to do with this book is I'm trying to, to insert into the discipline of geography this notion that we have to take economic development and community and economic development into account. You have to take account of things like asset mapping and, um, and policy. You know, that's very important. A lot of times geographers, they, they look at, geographers look at land use change and they look at spatial connections and things like that. And they look at kind of the science of location, but sometimes they overlook the policy part of it or they just, they, they don't uh, adequately incorporate that. For their part, people who study community and economic development could definitely, uh, you know, could, could benefit from an exposure to some of the concepts, of the key concepts in geography, like scale, connectivity, land use, uh, the built environment, things like that. And so there's, there's some overlap there. And I guess the book is just an attempt to kind of drive that point home by using the, the uh, in a sense, a, a, um, an, a little bit altered version of the Harvard case study method that I learned back as an undergraduate at University of Houston that has just stuck with me all of those years. You know, case studies are great. They, they can, if you do enough case studies, you can build a generalizable um, you know, an overall overarching theory, but 
in and of themselves, they don't do that, but they can validate or invalidate theories. And they can show that what they do is they show that, that, um, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times academic studies in geography and other disciplines, they use aggregate information and aggregate data without looking at the particularities of, of and the personalities of the particular places that they're that they're using as you know in their in their studies. So they'll they'll gather data on demographics and things like that, but they don't actually go on the ground and talk to people and find out what are the exact things going on here that makes uh, that makes this place this place. And so um, I'm the the different case studies. There are ten of them, uh, and I'm looking at everything from interior dry ports in Mexico. Dry ports are places where um, where intermodal uh, transportation connections happen, where uh, shipping containers are, are transferred between uh, rail and trucking. And the idea there is to enhance the connections of Mexico's maritime ports on both coasts. You know, they have the Pacific Coast and the, and the Gulf Coast. Um, and so these interior ports basically just enlarge the scope of the maritime ports. So there's a, a whole policy, a, you know, body of policy in there uh, by the Mexican government to really beef up these interior ports. And one of the things that I'm showing in, in that case study is how in Mexico, the public sector plays a much larger role in rail than it does in the United States. So another case study that I'm looking at is a corridor in West Texas. It's a cargo transport corridor that's emerging called the Ports to Plains Corridor. And the idea is to connect the border cities of Laredo, Eagle Pass, Del Rio um, to Denver and ultimately to the Canadian um, uh, Prairie provinces through West Texas. And that's why they call it ports to plains because they're looking at those border ports, um, interior ports, but then it runs through the plains. And that's a fascinating study because what they do is, and I'm looking at the marketing of the corridor, because in order to get money from either the federal government or the Texas Department of Transportation, they have to kind of market the thing and, and hype it and get people on board with the thing. Um, but what I noticed from their website, and this is what really drew me to that case study, is they were mentioning a number of intermodal facilities along the corridor. And I thought, wow, I didn't realize that, that here in Texas, we had all these intermodal facilities where they're transferring um, uh, containers between truck and rail. Well, that's not what they have. They were not quite there, you know, with all due respect to them, I, I, I love these communities. They're very good, but they're not quite using the term intermodal exactly accurately. And so what they do have, though, is the transfer of cargo between um, rail and and truck in both directions, by the way, but it's not containers. It's it's what we call bulk cargoes, and and that would be things like construction materials, metals, uh, scrap metal would be an example of that. Um, recycled things, um, uh, what they call aggregates, which are materials used in road construction or or even in building construction, things like that that are like these bulk cargoes, and. But what's interesting is every place where the rail crosses the corridor where you could have that interchange between cargos, it's different rail companies. And the different rail companies have completely different ways that they view 
um, working with local governments, for example, to bring these things about. So Union Pacific has their policies. Uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, they have their policies, for example. So um, that's, that's another case study. Then I'm also doing something like the, the studies I had done in Arkansas with the micropolitan areas. And I'm looking at four small communities in South Texas, three of them, no, excuse me, two of them are micropolitan and the two of them are just smaller than micropolitan. But I'm looking at things like their, their efforts to um, uh, beef up their main streets um, and then also their, their uh, transportation connectivity. I'm kind of doing a little bit of, a, of an asset mapping sort of thing for each one of them just to kind of you know, inventory what their positive features are and all that. Now, the big, the big holdup, though, with the book, the reason why it's going a little bit slow right now, of course, is the coronavirus uh, situation. We're kind of waiting to see what happens with retail in some of these small communities. Um, interestingly, I've, um, I read an article the other day in the Rio Grande Guardian that, that uh, or is it the Rio Grande Valley Guardian, Rio Grande Guardian, I believe it's called. It's an online um, kind of business publication. Um, they were pointing out that in down in the Rio Grande Valley of far South Texas, that smaller communities actually were finding a healthier uh, retail economy right now than the larger communities there, because the larger communities were are more dependent on Mexican shoppers coming across, and right now those are considered non-essential. So um, I'm not sure what, 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 this might be an edit moment right here. <laughs> but um, okay, so uh, help, help me out here. Oh, you're good. Um, I'll just say, um, yeah, I think that Dr. Yoder, that everything that you mentioned as a part of your book, even though it's not located, or these stories aren't located in Arkansas, much of what you're writing about is very applicable to many of the communities throughout our state. And there's always gonna be lessons learned um, through those case studies. And I think you did a really great job of sharing how a case study is a great way to understand why or why not something is working in an area. And also sharing you know, that each community is unique. And while the stats and the demographics can look similar, doesn't always mean that a community is going to function the same way another community does. And so just taking those best practices that you find through those case studies and applying them in a uni unique way to your community, um, I think is something that anybody can do um, and use in an effective manner. And I love that uh, you shared, you know, that for COVID, you know, you're going to, you're going to take that into your book um, and share, you know, the, the changes that have occurred um, in our world, the drastic changes, um, and look at why, you know, the pandemic has affected um, larger areas in a certain way or the smaller areas, how that's affected the retail landscape. Um, and I think that's just going to bring an e even more unique and deeper impact um, into the book. And that's probably uh, definitely not something you thought about when you first started writing, I'm sure it was just, it happened and you said, well, hey, we need to really take this in and apply it um, to what you were already writing. 
I was a deer in the headlights when the when the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh, my God, am I going to have to scrap the project? And it's like, no, the, the show must go on because these places that I'm studying, they're still going to be there. They're just going to they're going to have to adapt to this. Some places it'll just be a blip and they'll kind of go back to where they were. But there are some fundamental changes because of coronavirus that have impacted things at a global scale, and certainly at a national scale, things like the, the rise in e-commerce. So now what a lot of these communities are talking about is, um, is getting, everybody wants a distribution warehouse situation. They all want to have an Amazon distribution center now. Well, we can't have, we cannot have uh, Amazon distribution centers everywhere, of course. So uh, the, you know, some communities will be better suited to that than others. And another thing I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit is what I call the transportation riddle. And this is something that the, the more I get into to studying uh, communities and, 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 and their assets and their location um, advantages uh, and so on, is that sometimes the, the rules that we think apply to everything, sometimes they do not necessarily apply. So just because a community is on an interstate highway and on a rail line, does not necessarily mean that they're going to use, they're going to be able to utilize that to their advantage, um, especially in the case of a, of a rail company, because the, the way that the rail companies have explained it to me is they will only invest in a siding, um, it, you know, to, to match up with their track, their main line, if there's a reason to stop. And there has to be a pretty good reason to stop that that makes money for the rail company or they're just going to bypass. So, you know, some communities have been able to to build on that very well, but others don't. And the same thing with highways, like, for example, uh, going back to Arkansas for a minute, why is it that that Forest City, which is on I-40, it's about 40 miles, is my recollection, from Memphis, you would think that that would be a, a wonderful location but yet their manufacturing base has declined over what it was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. But then you have a place like Harrison that is basically two-lane roads, except there's one four-lane road that goes north of Harrison up to Branson. And yet there's, there's, um, that's the headquarters for Federal Express Freight. Um, and they've got a big trucking facility there. So it's like, what? You know, what's going on here? Um, but... It, there, in that case, it has to do with, because um, I, I did a study of Harrison, it, it, it has to do with the history. There had been a trucking company back in the days before the interstate highway, um, uh, the interstate highway system, when all the roads were two-lane roads, and a family had started a trucking company there, and, and it eventually got sold out to Federal Express, and they just already, they just had like a lengthy history of, of that particular industry, the trucking industry. And so it, it kind of flourished there. But then other communities that are right along interstate highways, they have they struggle a little bit to, uh, to capitalize on that. And I, I think one of the, the interesting examples that I saw was why is it that when you go to Arkadelphia uh, and Caddo Valley, why is all the, the highway oriented development in Caddo Valley, but not in Arkadelphia? Um, you know, I never, I never really was fully able to answer that, that question, but, you know, nonetheless, it is a, a question that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I think it just goes back to every place is, I think it just goes back to every place is unique. 
And That's there right. are just so many factors influencing those decisions um, that just because you think there's a set formula for success, that's not necessarily true um, in every place. Every place is going to have success with different assets, with different resources, leadership playing a role, policy playing a role, um, and then those traditional factors of location, demographics, whatever, you know, physical assets. Um, yeah, I think that it, it just goes to show that knowing your community and knowing, kind of doing that SWOT analysis, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, your opportunities, your threats, um, and really understanding that, getting everybody on the same page, um, I think it's also important. All of those pieces are the foundation um, for the success um, that many of the communities you've talked about today have, have seen. Um, and Dr. Yoder, I just wanna say thank you so much for speaking with me. I think that everything you talked about is really going to have an impact on our listenership. Um, and it's been a really fascinating conversation just for me. I know that I um, nobody can see my face, but uh, you can. And I was nodding probably 99% <laughs> of the time uh, because everything you're saying is just what I put into my work every day at the center. Oh, well, thank you so much. And, and, and for my part, my brain was going in about five different directions as I was talking. I was thinking about different things I would like to talk about, and, but I had to kind of, you know, keep it short and sweet. So. Oh, no, I think you did a great job. And I think that oh, each of those questions that we walked through really compounded on each other um, and created a really good narrative. And with the conclusion of this episode, that wraps up season two of the CDI podcast. We'll see you next year.